Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Life is full of transitions, and most of the time it is done to prepare both emotionally and mechanically for the next step in life. But what about when the next step in life is hospice? Joining us today is Susan Strauss, who has been both a hospice nurse and hospice administrator for nearly two decades, and she now works in Cape Cod. We're going to ask her to explain some of these processes. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. I believe that we all know the basic idea of hospice, and certainly the psychological aspects of hospice experiences are as central as the medical ones. But what is different about hospice? Why is being in a hospice different than merely being at home with the family doctor so that the family can take care of the dying patient at home? What's different about hospice? Hospice is not a place, but it's a type of care. It's a philosophy of care. A patient can be at home with their family and their personal physician and still be receiving hospice services. Hospice specializes in end-of-life care. End-of-life care is the process by which someone who has been diagnosed with terminal illness is able to live out their days in comfort and with dignity. So when someone goes into hospice, they don't necessarily have to follow the hospice doctors. They can have their own doctors continue? Yes. When a patient elects hospice services, what the community sometimes isn't aware of that hospice is the one benefit that individuals actually elect. They can elect to receive hospice services. It's a benefit. It's in the, it's the Medicare benefit, and many insurances do also have a hospice benefit. But in the Medicare hospice benefit, they actually have to sign what's called a notice of election. They are electing to receive hospice services. Is this generally the way it's done, or do we find that more people are put into hospice by their doctors or families? Is it always an election? Yes, it absolutely is an election, either by the patient or if the patient doesn't have capacity at the time by his or her health care proxy or surrogate. Which, of course, speaks right away to the fact that when there is someone sick in the family, it's very important for the family or someone else to have that power of surrogate so they can make these decisions when the time comes. Yes, absolutely. Advanced directives are the most important things in anyone's life to have in place whether it's for hospice services or emergency room services, everyone should absolutely have discussed and put their advanced directives, which truly speaks to what their choices for their medical attention and who they want in the event that they are unable to make that decision, to make that decision for them. Psychologically, one would think that there is a certain hesitancy in many people that they may not want to deal with that. They may not want to sign this. Is that a common problem that you see? Yes. It's common in the Western world, in the United States. Death is not something that is discussed or celebrated, whereas in other countries, death is something that is part of a life cycle, and it is discussed. And in many countries, the death of a loved one is actually celebrated. As a matter of fact, when I speak to staff or, or when, I, when I speak to family members, I often use the example of the Whalen Wall in Israel. That is where family members, loved ones go to express their grief and sometimes how they celebrate the life of a loved one who has passed on. How long can someone stay on hospice? Is it an unlimited thing or is it time limit? As long as the physician who is signing what is called the Certificate of Terminal Illness feels that in his or her best judgment, the patient has less than six months to live should a disease run its normal course. Now, that being said, no one expects a crystal ball. It's what is in his or her best judgment. 
and as time has gone by and as technology has advanced, that it becomes difficult to say that someone is going to die in exactly six months. But it is not difficult or uncommon for a physician to say, should this disease run its normal course, I would not be surprised or I would expect that this patient would have passed on within the next six months. As long as a physician is continuing to make that judgment and sign that certificate of terminal illness, a patient is eligible and entitled to receive hospice services. What do hospice services entail? What's different? What's part of the package, so to speak? What, what should a family expect? Hospice services is an interdisciplinary process unlike other health care services, which tend to be multidisciplinary. The patient's plan of care involves the patient and the family, whomever they call family, not necessarily a spouse, if there is no spouse, or, or a child, or a significant other. It's whomever the patient designates as family. It could be the neighbor. And the interdisciplinary group is comprised of a physician or multiple physicians, home health aides, social worker, bereavement counselors, chaplain services, nursing, volunteers, and nutritional and pharmaceutical support. You used intradisciplinary versus multidisciplinary. And as you said that, my own internal logic and emotion said, yeah, that's very true. There are very few places where we have coordination and integration the way there is in hospice. Interesting point. The hospice team, or IDG, interdisciplinary group, meets at a minimum of every two weeks to discuss each and every one of their patients, to review where the patient is in their disease process, to review what the patient needs are, how their symptoms are being managed, are their symptoms being managed, what further needs will they require, are they declining, are they at a plateau, what are the family needs. Hospice takes care of the entire family group. It's not just about the patient, it's about the patient and the family. And also, I think a lot of people have this automatic assumption that hospice takes care of people mainly dying from end-stage cancer. I don't think people understand the breadth of the diagnoses that will qualify for hospice. When hospice started to arise in, in this country specifically, terminal illness was basically cancer. As time has gone on and technology has advanced, so have the differences in what we're seeing as far as diagnosis in the hospice community. We have patients who are terminal from end-stage renal disease, from end-stage diabetes, end-stage cardiac, end-stage pulmonary diseases, Alzheimer's, ALS, a multitude of neurological, end-stage neurological diseases. So it is not just for cancer, as many are led to believe. As a matter of fact, within my organization, the percentage of cancer patients is approximately 47 to 48, whereas 15, 20 years ago, it may have been as high as 60 or 70. It's often been said that hospice knows better than most others on how to manage chronic pain. Is this merely because the patients are terminal and the treatment is just more aggressive? I wouldn't say that hospices know better. I think what hospices focus on is they utilize a what's called the World Health Organization Platform for Pain and Symptom Management. And hospice staff, both clinical and non-clinical, are trained in the use of medication 
and in the use of specific medications for specific pain symptomology. We work with physicians. We work with anesthesiologists who specialize in pain. We work with psychiatrists who deal with the emotional and psychological impacts of pain. Pain is just not physical. There is emotional pain. There is spiritual pain. And we look at pain at all different levels. For example, bone pain. Yes, we address the bone pain, but what else is causing this individual and the family pain? And how do we address it? This whole process sounds very expensive. I can't imagine that there would be this equivalent in most hospitals. Uh, Hospice is funded differently, perhaps? The Medicare hospice benefit, which is at no cost to the patient, a Medicare hospice patient, is paid on a per diem basis, which means it's paid on a per daily, it's a daily rate. There are four levels of hospice care, depending on what the patient needs are at any given time during their time within the hospice benefit. You have what's called a routine level of care, which is basically home care, hospice home care. You have a respite level of care, which is five days in a skilled facility, five consecutive days in which the patient is usually transported to a skilled facility, a Medicare, Medicaid skilled facility, in order to give the caregiver and or family member a five-day respite. So the respite's for the family? The respite is really for the family, correct. Then what is called continuous care, which is care that is provided in the home up to 24 hours a day with services being at least more than half being provided by a clinician, a nurse, LPN or RN, for symptoms that are somewhat what they call in a crisis situation, such as pain, nausea, vomiting, agitation, and that they need constant supervision or constant assessment by a skilled nurse. Then what is known as general inpatient level of care, which is for management of pain and symptoms that cannot be managed in the home. For example, a patient is in extreme pain, which is out of control or unmanageable. The family is unable to have, for instance, a morphine drip in the home. They are uncomfortable with having that morphine drip in the home. They don't want to give medication every hour if that's what the physician ordered. They are uncomfortable giving that medication. So the patient then gets transferred to either a freestanding hospice inpatient unit or a contracted facility, and by that I mean that the hospice is contracted with either a hospital or a skilled nursing facility in which they will stay, they will they will be treated for as long as necessary to get that pain and symptom under control. And then they get discharged home. Occasionally people are very sick, but they want to die before their time. And they may request that treatment not be given to them or they be put into a, a sedation, these sort of things. The ethics here could be very sticky. What sort of mechanisms exist in most hospices to deal with questions like this? Actually, most hospices, I would say probably all hospices have an ethics committee. Mm -hmm. Such requests may bring up some questions and thoughts are always brought to an ethics committee for discussion. I know within my organization, we've had several questions come up or requests in which it's brought to an ethics committee, which is comprised of members of the community, also physicians, attorneys, nurses, home health aides, and the question is, is is discussed and the request is discussed. And we always try and honor what a patient's wish is as long as it is not something that, that actually hastens their demise. Which goes right back to what you said at the beginning about the importance of letting people know before we reach this stage of life how we want to go through this stage of life. Correct.
Very right. important. Yes. But But now let's look at it a little bit differently, though, because I can imagine that not everyone is emotionally ready to see someone in their family die. The range of family members' reactions must be incredible. How does the hospice team deal with this? You know, someone gets sick very quickly, they're in an accident, all of a sudden this family, the world's falling apart for them, and instantly, because of the nature of the illness, they they end up in a hospice. How how do you guys deal with this? Again, as I said earlier, we, we work with the entire family, with those who are facing that sudden decision-making process and, and not, they, they're, we help them navigate through the maze of being able to make the decision that certainly honors what the patient would have wanted, but also what they are comfortable with. We have social workers, we have spiritual support. We do whatever it takes to help them through this process. It is ultimately their decision, whoever is the decision maker, how the patient is to be cared for and what they want to continue with and what they don't want to continue with. We certainly present them with a multitude of options. If they choose to not what is known not to have what is known as a DNR, do not resuscitate order, they are not asked to. They are not certainly told you must have a do not resuscitate order. As a matter of fact, they have the right to be resuscitated. Does hospice provide counseling after the person passes away? Yes. Hospice, by law, actually, by federal law, must continue to provide what is known as bereavement services up to 13 months post the death of a hospice patient. And to follow by that same thought, I know that there are many hospices that provide these types of programs for surviving children, young children, not adult children. Yes. Uh, one was a camp in Florida that I know of, and there may be other ones. How common is this? It is very common. And why it's becoming actually more common is, is the demographics of our hospice patients is not necessarily over 65 or over 85. We have patients as young as six months really, to 101. So a, a diverse family unit now. We have patients who have siblings, very young siblings, who have watched their older brother or younger brother go through an illness and the fa- and watch their moms and their dads and their grandparents go through a grief, you know, prior, a grief experience prior to the death of this child. And these siblings are impacted by this. And it is very important for the interdisciplinary team to recognize that sometimes those children if it, if it's not recognized early enough, get lost because everyone is so focused on the, the dying child as they should be, but siblings who are experiencing anticipatory grief, and that needs to be addressed. One of the things you just said is you had patients as little as six months. Uh, one of the more painful aspects of life, obviously, is when a child needs hospice. It's, it's even hard to talk about this. When does the hospice get involved in the care of a dying child? Again, would the hospice be, I'm sorry, would the child be transferred to a hospice unit rather than remain in an oncology unit, so to speak, at a hospital or, or at home? Are there any guidelines? Whatever the, the, the child's parents and or caregivers would request. Now, in my years of experience, I've gotten involved in, we have gotten involved prior to the birth of a child who we knew would die. Really? That's how early we've gotten involved. When when the parents were well aware that at the point of birth that the child may die at birth or shortly thereafter. 
So there's that whole anticipatory process. We work with the parents. We work with the family. And then we work through the journey that they have to go through, because it is a journey. And a very necessary journey that is sometimes extremely difficult. We... Yes. Um, yeah. Again, just even hearing about this, it's it's so uncomfortable to even talk about it, but it is reality, and I'm so glad that the hospice exists. Susan Strauss is a hospice nurse and a hospice administrator, has done so for approximately two decades. She now works up in Cape Cod, and we've talked about the many aspects of hospice, including some of the emotional issues that need to be dealt with, and sometimes as much as they are uncomfortable, actually in that discomfort is the ability to find the way to move on and carry on in life. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure.